0: We'll take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. And as we did last week, let's have a little fun with the kids and let's get to Judges by memory. If we start at the very beginning, we say it all together Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. Very, very good. Uh, it's important as we're working our way through the 66 snapshots of God, these overviews of each individual book, that it's a, it's a good reminder to know where these books are. And one of the first things we do in Sunday school, one of the first things we do as a, as a, as a believer, as a, as a child in the curriculum of God in the church, is to learn the books of the Bible. I want to encourage you to make sure that you know those uh, backwards and forwards as you can so that you can find your way through with God's Word with ease. Now that you're in the book of Joshua, I want you to go, book of Judges rather, go all the way to the end. I want you to look at the very last verse of the book, and then we're going to back up and walk through the book together. The very last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, reads this way In those days, this is the days of the Judges, the days this book covers, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then this statement: Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you want a recipe for disaster in a culture, have that last phrase be the moral intuitive principle of a society. Every man, every woman does that which is right in their own eyes. In other words, intuitively. Leaning on your own intuition to know right from wrong and good from bad and God from the devil and heaven from hell and an entire mixed up value system. If we're leaning on our own understanding, then we'll not find the path toward righteousness that the book of Proverbs tells us in chapter 3. All of us are tempted to lean on our own understanding. And this book is is a catalog of what looks like when individuals and leaders and an entire culture and society leans on their own understanding. Or to say it in in the, the way that Judges says it, to do what's right in your own eyes. The book of Judges is a dark book. It's said another way, it's the darkest book in the Bible. There's not a lot of good news in the book of Judges, but I think it lays the foundation for our need for the gospel like no other book in the Bible. So unique in showing the the sinful cycles of every man and how we can dive into our depravity and follow after our own understanding and do us right in our own eyes. This is not a G-rated book. I've read the whole book in one sitting before. Afterwards, I was pretty downcast. It's a complex, twisted, dark, and brutal account. Read this book and you'll find murder, conspiracy, rape, idolatry, perversion, homosexuality, betrayal, deceit, treachery, bloodshed, War, fornication, adultery, divorce, and moral failure at every level from the lay person all the way up to the leader. You find these failures probably most pronounced and most most, uh, on display in the leaders in Israel. Significant character flaws show up in the men who are supposed to lead the people away from sin and toward God. And the people followed these leaders in gross sins themselves. Failure abounds and defeat becomes normal in this book. The great warrior king, who is to lead his people in triumph, leaves his people in defeat because of their sin. But against this backdrop, God stands in a radical contrast. In a sense, this is a black backdrop onto which the diamond of God is showing in the full faceted glory of His love, His grace, His mercy, and His nature. The Holy Spirit communicates His theology differently in Judges than in any other book in the Bible. The contents are unexpected. The contents are unthinkable. If you want a strange kind of proof for the The canonicity of the Word of God, that that, that the books of the Bible are stitched together to show us a complete view of God and man, you you need look no further than the book of Judges. No one who was trying to preserve a good view of of the the people who made up the, the people of God in the Old Testament would have put this book in the Bible. But God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired this book to be written so that we could see not only their failures, but also see... The mirror for our own. A little background. This is review that we, we covered last week, but it's important to know where we are in the flow of redemptive history. Remember, God promises Abraham uh, the land of Israel in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. He also promised that from Abraham would come a great nation for the purpose of telling the world about the only true and living God, Yahweh, the I am who I am. In a strange irony, though, God took Abraham's descendants all the way south to Egypt and incubated them. The nation grew from a few to millions. They were protected from war and they were protected from famine while they, they grew as a nation in slavery in Egypt. Then God delivered the Jews from Egypt and set them on the course for the promised land. That's the great exodus. And then on the way, they were disobedient, wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation had to die off. Then under the leadership of Joshua, as we saw last week, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River from the east, began to take that land that God promised, and that is the book of Joshua. But there was a mandate from God. And the mandate was when you come to the cities that you need to conquer... They are to destroy the Canaanites utterly. No survivors. Now, was this hyperbole? Perhaps in the sovereignty of God, he knew that they would not do that. So, in the sovereignty of God, he put very clear instructions for when they didn't obey, that they would have regulations for staying away from the Canaanites. This was a a dark time. Israel was to go and wipe out the Canaanites. And by the way, they deserved to be wiped out just as every sinner does. The wages of sin is death. God is serious about idolatry. God wanted the culture, the idolatrous cultures, wiped off the, the face of the earth in Israel so there would be no temptations to the idols that were in that land, the distractions from Yahweh and His worship. These people were wicked beyond description. Child sacrifices, the worship of false gods, even killing women. But the people of Israel were disobedient. They rarely, rarely came close to wiping out these cities. In God's grace and kindness, he gave regulations for if they did not obey, here's how they were to treat these foreigners in their land. But things begin to change when Joshua dies. They started off very good, started off very well. And then the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. Look at Judges one. Now it came about after the death of Joshua. That the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, This is an important question who, this is about leadership, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? There's a principle here. Always the people of God are looking for human leaders. Remember that, and you're going to see this uh, throughout the coming uh, uh, books, especially in 1 Samuel, where the People were supposed to look to God as their king, to God as the leader, to God as their savior and shepherd. But they wanted a, a king, a human king, just like the, the nations around them. There's a, a sense in which people want to follow someone they can see. So God, in his kind and gracious accommodation, then said, then I will set up leaders. And that will be uh, men and women called, uh, uh, called Deborah who were judges, who were leaders. They were governors People should have looked to God. God should have been enough. But they cried out for a leader in this crisis of leadership. And that crisis of leadership, frankly, would not be solved until the reign of David. And then it would only last through the reign of Solomon. And then the kingdom was split and there would be a problem of leadership again. And we will get there in 1st 2nd Kings and 1st 2nd Samuel and 1st 2nd Chronicles. One of the cyclical lessons in the Old Testament is that spiritual leadership involves abandoning moral intuition and embracing divine revelation. If you can see that pattern in these leaders, what a great and wonderful lesson it is for all of us. The decline of Israel in the book of Judges was not because there was no king. It was not because there, were no, there was no leader. It was not for lack of a good judge, it was because the people failed to apply Deuteronomy 6 in their own homes where the spiritual leadership being looked to as a, uh, in the Father to pass on the Word of God and the values of God to his little flock in his home, the people of God. The basic of leadership is the essence of leadership and that was forsaken in the day of Judges, which is to look to God himself as our personal and our corporate leader. Judges then is really about an endless cycle of sin and God's boundless grace and forgiveness. If any one of us had been God during the book of Judges, during this time of Judges, and we continued to see the people promise and fail and promise and fail and promise and fail, we would have turned our back on them, but not God. God is endless and infinite in grace. And mercy. And that same God who is merciful and gracious to the Israelites in the book of Judges maintains that grace and mercy in the gospel to you and me in Jesus Christ. There's a cycle, and if you study Judges at all, you know this cycle. It, it happens, uh, uh, there's a five step cycle that happens over and over. There's sin, Israel sins against the Lord. Then there's servitude, they're put uh, under service to uh, a Canaanite. Ruler, the Lord allows Israel's enemies to oppress them. Sin, servitude, supplication, they come to the Lord and repent. They ask God to forgive them, and he does. Then salvation, the Lord raises up a judge or a deliverer who rescues them, and then they sin again, and the cycle starts all over again. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and then sin again. Over and over and over in the book of Judges. This cycle should sound familiar. This cycle is our biography. We sin. We fall into service to that sin. It dominates us. We pray for the Lord's forgiveness. He raises up and scripturates lessons in our lives. We repent. And then we find ourselves sinning again. The judge the Lord himself gives us abundant opportunities to repent and restore our relationship with him. The fact that we, have a very, that we have a heartbeat itself ought to be an indication that he's kind and gracious. What is the book of Judges about? Well, there are three main sections if you want to break it down as an outline. The author foreshadows the descent of the book in his introduction. That's in chapter 1, verses one 1- through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. That's the foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Then from chapter 3, verse 7 to 1631, we meet 12 judges some major, some minor, some good, some evil, most men, one woman. Then from chapter 17, verse 1 to chapter to the end of the book, 2125, we see the full depravity of the nation on full display because every man then has thrown himself into doing what is right in his own eyes. If you want a breakdown of the book of Judges that will really serve our own evaluation of our own hearts, there are two realities that dissolve moral intuition. Now, remember, the theme of Judges is everyone's doing that which is right in their own hearts. That's moral intuition. Doing what's right based on what you think. And there are two realities that are supposed to be taught through this book for our souls so that we will dissolve those inclinations to lean on our own understanding. The first is this. We must remember, number one, our sinfulness is worse than we imagine. Our sinfulness is worse. It's far worse than we can imagine. God had been uh, with the Jews and God had given the land with the Jew, uh, the land back to the Jews that He promised them, but the people never obeyed God by driving out the Canaanites. Their failure to do so amounted to a lack of faith and a lack of obedience. Now, there's a summary that God intends to tell us. When you see repetition in the scriptures, that ought to alert you. It's like a flashing uh, red light on the dashboard. This is important. Let's begin looking at Joshua chapter 1, verse 27. See if you hear a, rep- a repetitive phrase in these verses. Remember, the nations, the, the uh, tribes, rather, have been uh, um, uh, divided. They're to go to the land, the borders that, that God had established for them, and to establish the kingdom of God there to kill the Canaanites, to wipe them out, to demolish their idols, to wipe out their idolatry, and to begin inheriting the land in a way that God had promised Judges 127 But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean or Beth Shean and its villages or Ta'anach and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibliam or its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages so the Canaanites persisted living in that land verse 28 It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites... Lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher, verse 31, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahlab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Afik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Are you hearing a pattern? Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. See the pattern there? They lived among them. They did not drive them out. They became neighbors to the enemies of God. Pattern of disobedience. The theological and divine interpretation of these events is given for us and given to us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Now the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Boat and said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but, here's the key, you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Wow, is that a forecast of what's coming. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, which means weeping. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. Think about this. The people were caught In their disobedience, red-handed, God listens to their prayer, forgives their sin, and they sacrifice to the Lord. There is a mini revival in verse 5. So in response to the people's repentance, God then gives them leaders, shepherds. He sets up the judges. Now, judges were were not like we might think of... A man sitting in a robe who's adjudicating a trial. These judges were were governor, deliverer, counselor, military leader type people. Few of them were of any admirable character, interestingly enough. The first few might actually be the best. The book's overall theological problem then is presented in chapter 2, verses 16 and 19. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. They were under servitude to these these godless pagans, these idolaters who were in the land that they did not drive out. They became servants to them. God would raise up a judge and they would have victory over them. And then they would go right back into fraternizing with them. God raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, yet Verse 17, they did not listen to their judges. Listen to this language. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. God heard their prayers. Verse 19, very important. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also, this is important, verse 21, will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is tragic. God said, honor me, obey me, get rid of the idolatry, take the land I have promised you, and they didn't. Wow, was it easy to throw rocks at them? Wow, was it easy to think of Of how they have in in some way in in many ways in every way abandoned the lord but how is it with us oh we haven't had judges but god has no doubt arrested your attention through a spiritual leader through through a book a sermon through a discipleship relationship you've read passages you've You've been experienced in the scriptures before and God has given you deep conviction. You've found sin in your life. Have you repented of it? Remember, the idols in, 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 in Israel have a cousin to the idols in our heart. An idol is anything for which you will sin in order to get or enjoy. Or the idol is something that you you will sin because you don't get to get it. Because you don't enjoy it. Those are the idols in our heart. You and I have idols just as as grotesque and large in our hearts as these people had in their land. Things that we sin to do, to enjoy, to think about. Things that will sin if we don't get to enjoy them that are outside of God. We repent, we confess, we ask forgiveness. And then we experience a moment, a day, a week, a, si- a season of peace, only to drift right back into the same sins. Have you seen the cycles of sin patterns in your life? Have you experienced God's grace and forgiveness only to return to the same sinful action? Well, when all else failed, Israel returned to God. Listen to that. When all else failed, they returned to God. God is gracious in letting all those idols in our hearts fail us so that we'll return to Him. Some of these judges did a wonderful job, and some were were wicked and evil. Othniel, Ehud, of the first three, Deborah was the most impressive. She was a prophetess and a judge. She called the men of Israel to fight their enemies and act like men. Have faith in God. She led the army in chapter 4 and 5. Is her famous victory song. Now, let's just talk about the thing everyone wants to talk about when they see Deborah. Deborah was not called to be a pastor. There are very specific regulations in uh, the pastoral epistles. In uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, about a woman not leading or being a pastor or an elder in the church. But in this time, in this season, in this moment, God chose Deborah because of her holiness, her godliness, her leadership. And led through her as a woman specifically, as a judge in Israel. And accomplished much with her and through her. Gideon's judgeship. We all know about Gideon. Was characterized by good times and bad times. Gideon's an interesting case study. Interesting study of character. He demonstrated the great, greatest degrees of faith, but in the end, he personally set up an idol in chapter 8, verse 27. And Gideon had enough faith to deliver Israel, Israel, but that faith did not remove the idolatry from his life, his, his, his culture, or even Israel's future. The best part of, of Gideon's leadership comes in chapter 8, verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son. For, does, doesn't that sound like a king, by the way? A, 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 a royal dynasty? For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. But listen to this. He got it right. The Lord shall rule over you. He understood that he was only a proxy for God's leadership, but that God was the ultimate leader of the people. But Gideon's son, Abimelech, tries to establish himself not as a judge, but as a king. But he's mortally wounded by a woman who dropped a millstone on his head in chapter 9. That's an interesting one to read with your kids. Then there's, we, we have to talk about this when we open the book of Judges. There's Jephthah in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. He did not trust that God will fulfill his promise to give him victory against uh, Ammon. He recognized a foreign deity in his speech to the king of Edom in 1124. And he does something horrific. He makes a terrifying, horrific vow about sacrificing his daughter, whoever comes out of the house first, his daughter comes out first, he had to know his family was in there, and he actually, I I think he fulfilled that vow, and ends up burning his daughter as a human sacrifice at the end of chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. There's a lot of quagmire issues in that, it was a terrible vow I know we're supposed to keep our vows. This was a vow that should have never, ever, ever been made. We also have Samson. Samson is a gifted leader in the book of Judges like no other leader. There's no other leader in Judges like Samson. He actually shows up in in the great chapter of faith in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith. Because of a Nazarite vow... He never cut his hair or drank any strong drink. God blesses him with amazing strength and amazing bravery. But he had a lust for philistine women, which had a string tied to his heart more than it should have Now just I noticed we noticed last week in, in Joshua thirteen one that When Joshua was old and advanced in years, the Lord said you're old and advanced in years. There's a little bit of humor there. This one actually makes me smile a bit and scratch my head a lot. In Judges 14, listen to the relationship between Samson and his parents and this woman. Samson, Judges 14, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. There's the problem in the beginning So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Don't you all wish that finding husbands and wives were that simple? Just go tell your your mom or your dad, "Go, go get this person. His father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives, a Jew? Or among all our people that you could go take, that you have to go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She, here's the key, looks good to me. Be careful when all your attraction, there's a whole dating series right there, I think. Be careful when your attraction to someone is external only. And he admits it, she looks good to me. You know the story, he kills a lion, Lion. he finds uh, honey in the carcass, he devises a riddle, he's tricked by his new Philistine wife, Delilah, she, she uh, finds out the strength after much cajoling of his, uh, uh, the secret of his strength, which is in his Nazarite vow, and his hair... Cuts his hair. He loses his strength. He's tied to pillars. There's a great party. And in a great act of faith, he asks after his eyes are gouged out, he asks for strength in faith one more time. And he pulls the pillars together and kills all the party. What was the core issue with these stubborn people? This is important. God over and over and over was testing them, listen, to see if he meant more to them than the land. God will test us to make sure that he is more important to us than the blessings he gives us. This testing shows that faith and trust in God must take precedence over the physical and observable blessings that God grants us in His kindness. We should be so thankful for the, relationship, the, the, the uh, blessings that God gives us, but never to substitute our love for them with our love for Him. During the Judges, Israel was acting like living in Canaan was only a part of the relationship with God they wanted. But God didn't want to allow them that luxury. He said, I want to be the reason, not a reason. We say it over and over. God intends to be the point of our life, not a part of our life. It got so bad that chapter 19 has an almost identical scene as that of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how low it got in Israel. When you look at these, these cycles, when you look at these, these, these people, when you look at these judges, instead of being uh, judgmental against them, instead of saying those wicked people, how could they be that way, it, it ought to show us the acorns of all of these sins in our own hearts that can grow into saplings and then full-grown oaks. God will test us. God will test us to see if he is more important to us than the blessings he gives us. He also wants us to understand that we are worse than we think. I was having a conversation with a very dear friend in the last few weeks who was um, struggling with different thoughts of different sins, as we all do. And uh, we had an interesting kind of smiling conversation where the, the point was made, well, I, I just want to make sure that that's not in my heart. Guess what? Friends, it's all in our hearts. We are inclined to sinful thoughts. Sin comes from sinful thoughts, and sinful thoughts come from a sinful heart, and we all have it. Our sinfulness is worse than we imagine. But the other reality that can dissolve our, our moral intuition that this book highlights Number two, God's faithfulness is better than we deserve. God's faithfulness is better than we deserve. You know what's amazing? is If you look at the end of the book of Judges, there's still a nation of Israel. After they continue to throw his blessings back in his face, disobedience back in his face, to follow after foreign gods that they knew were not real, he still forgives. He still keeps his covenant. He still keeps opening up his arms to Israel. God's faithfulness is better than we deserve. It was better for them, and it's better than we deserve today. There's a good summary of what goes on in the heart and in the mind of God in these cycles. In uh, Look over at chapter 10 for a minute. Chapter 10. Um, just a, a picture of what... The, just look at God in these verses. In Judges 10, verse 6, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, the summary statement, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They served every possible manner of God except Yahweh, the true and living God. So, verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the uh, Philistines, into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, uh, Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then, 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 after they were greatly distressed, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the uh, May- and uh, oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet, remember, I've done this before, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I no long, will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Divine sarcasm. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Wow. I hope you can see a reflection of our own biography in this. God is gracious and merciful and watches us struggle and slip into sin. Who watches us commit the uh, idolatry of our hearts in ways that are pronounced, in ways that are subtle. But he's always waiting to hear us. God is a testing God. If you look at this book from beginning to end, you will see he is a testing God. He still is. He intends that the consequences of our sin would teach us to return to Him. Isaiah would say, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Isaiah uh, uh, 55. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil turn from His ways. God forgives. Listen. God forgives over and over and over and over. And over and over and over again, you cannot out-sin God's grace, but a continuance in sin, if we go to the New Testament, reveals that you may not have ever experienced His grace in the first place. God desires our focus to be Himself, not His blessings. Another driving lesson of the book is the danger of becoming, becoming canonized, if I can say it that way. Worldly values, worldly desires, worldly leisure, worldly entertainment, love for money, not willing to do the hard, sacrificial, laborious work of obeying God. Have you become canonized? We don't talk much about worldliness anymore. First John does: flee worldliness. All this in the world—the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life—passing away. Canaanism was worldliness. So, you begin to ignore God's commands. You begin to ignore His word. You begin to forget what He's done. And the lines of morality become blurred, distorted, even eventually obliterated. And you begin doing what is right. The climax of this book, you begin doing what's right in your own eyes, in your own heart. Listen, friends, our sinfulness is indeed worse than we imagine. But God's faithfulness is better than we deserve. And His faithfulness is is never any place more on display than in the gospel. Uh, The the time that we're in right now, the, the coronavirus pandemic, makes all of us ask some hard questions. All of us ask heavy questions. You may be troubled and fearful and worried and downcast and depressed, disillusioned, uncertain, Can I just tell you that God knows and sees there's nothing that's ever surprised Him? He knows how this thing began, He knows how it will end. And let me tell you this this will not be the last trial in our lives, but it is a test for us. It's a test to show us what's really there in our hearts. We're going to find out in just a few weeks that the people wanted a king, not a judge. They wanted a king, they got a judge, but you know what they needed? A savior. They wanted a king, got a judge, but needed a savior. That's all intended, by the way, to set up the next chapter, which goes hand in glove with that. The next uh, book, rather, the book of Ruth. Look at the opening verse in Ruth 1. Now it came about, here it is, in the days when the judges governed. As awful as judges is, the book of Ruth just sprouts like a like a, a whole field of dirt with this wonderful green sprout that comes up and says there's life. And that's the book of Ruth. You know what? We need the same Savior. And I hope, I trust that you've come to grips with your own. Standing before God, you see the cycles of sin in your life and you've committed your way to the Lord by believing the gospel, understanding, understanding His grace and mercy and not presuming on the gifts He gives. We are no better than the people in the book of Judges. All of their sins reside in acorn form in our hearts. Be careful to do some good self-evaluation and see ourselves in where they failed and not make the same mistakes. The book ends in that telling statement, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I've alluded to it all, all during this sermon, but you know Proverbs chapter three, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's in your own eyes. That's what the people did in the book of Judges. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In a sense, the book of Judges is an illustration of the opposite side of that command. Let's not be wise in our own eyes, let's not do what's right in our own eyes, let's not lean on our own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all our hearts, and in every way we have, acknowledge Him.